I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week. We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Listener note. This podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics, or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back. Today, we are working through two very important clinical practice guidelines for you. We have one on congenital muscular torticollis. I'm just going to call it torticollis from now on. And one on developmental coordination disorder or DCD. We have mentioned this before, but these are must read documents. If a CPG is out there, you have to know it. And they're actually quite helpful and easy to read. It should really help you make good clinical decisions on case-based questions. It should also help you prioritize. The most recent torticollis CPG is from 2018, so make sure you're studying that one. It's the most up-to-date. The message we really got from the torticollis CPG is that early detection and intervention is paramount. The CPG states that if started before one month of age, 98% of infants with CMT achieve normal range within 1.5 months but waiting until after one month of age prolongs the physical therapy episode of care to approximately six months, and waiting until six months can require nine to 10 months of physical therapy intervention with progressively fewer infants achieving normal range. 
So with this 2018 update, they added an action statement. That action statement is to educate expectant parents and parents of newborns to prevent asymmetries and torticollis. This can fall on a variety of different professionals, such as physicians, nurses, midwives, prenatal educators, obstetrical nurses, lactation specialists, nurse practitioners, or PTs. But they recommend that all expectant parents and parents of newborns within the first two days of birth be educated on the importance of supervised prone tummy time play when awake three or more times daily, full active movement throughout the body, prevention of postural preferences, and the role of a pediatric PT in the management of postural preference and optimizing motor development. On top of that education piece from the first action statement, the second action statement recommends that newborns and infants be assessed for asymmetries or CMT. So again, any clinician or family member must pay attention to the presence of neck and or facial or cranial asymmetry within the first two days of birth using passive cervical rotation and or visual observation as their respective training supports when the newborn is in the newborn nursery or at the site of delivery. The next action statement recommends that when asymmetries or torticollis are identified, that we need to refer these infants with asymmetries to physicians and physical therapists. Things that definitely require a referral are things like a postural preference, reduced cervical range of motion, any SCM masses, and or craniofacial asymmetry. One thing to consider here, if the infant is at all suspective of having a non-muscular condition that might cause these asymmetries, then they should be fully examined by the appropriate specialist to rule out confounding diagnoses before initiating PT. These next statements are just reminders because it's referenced so many times in the CEPG that it must be important. Petronic et al. found that when treatment was initiated before one month of age, 99% of infants with CMT achieved excellent clinical outcomes with an average treatment duration of 1.5 months, but if initiated between one and three months of age, only 89% of infants achieved excellent outcomes with treatment duration averaging 5.9 months. When initiated between three and six months of age, 62% of infants achieved excellent outcomes with treatment duration averaging 7.2 months. When initiated between 6 and 12 months of age, 19% of infants achieved excellent outcomes with an average treatment duration of 8.9 months. This is in specific contrast to outdated recommendations to provide stretching instruction to the parents when CMT is identified at birth and only refer to PT at two months of age if the condition does not resolve. Recent studies suggest that early physical therapy reduces the time to resolution compared with parent-only stretching, that infants become more difficult to stretch as they age and develop neck control, and that earlier intervention can negate the need for later surgery. When assessing a child with torticollis in the clinic, there are some specific birth and history factors that need to be covered with the family. These are chronological age and corrected age if the infant was born preterm, age of onset of symptoms, which may be aided by photographs, pregnancy history, including maternal sense of whether the baby was stuck in the position during the final six weeks of pregnancy, delivery history, including birth presentation, so were they cephalic or breech, and low birth weight, 
use of any assistance during the delivery, such as something like forceps or vacuum suction, head posture and preference and asymmetries of the head and face, family history of torticollis or any other congenital or developmental conditions, other known or suspected medical conditions, and developmental milestones. This intake is an important time to screen infants for non-muscular causes of asymmetry and conditions associated with CMT. PT should perform and document screens of the neurological, musculoskeletal, integumentary, and cardiopulmonary systems, including screens of vision, GI history, postural preferences, and the structural and movement symmetry of the neck, face and head, trunk, hips, and upper and lower extremities. The next action statement advises that we refer infants from physical therapists to physicians if indicated by a screen. We should document referral of infants to their physicians for additional diagnostic testing when a screen identifies the following, a non-muscular cause of asymmetry. So if you're seeing something like poor visual tracking or abnormal muscle tone or any extra muscular masses, associated conditions, asymmetries inconsistent with CMT, or if the infant is older than 12 months and facial asymmetry and or 10 to 15 degrees of difference exists in passive and active cervical rotation or lateral flexion, or if the infant is seven months or older with an SCM mass, if the side of the torticollis changes, or if the size or the location of the SCM mass increases. The next action statement has been revised and updated. It states that therapists should be requesting images and reports. Physical therapists should request, review, and include in the medical record all images and interpretive reports completed for the diagnostic workup of an infant with suspected or diagnosed CMT to inform prognosis. The next action statement feels a bit obvious. It states that the therapist should examine body structures. Of course we will. However, it does specify seven specific body structures. So looking at infant posture and tolerance to supine prone sitting and standing positions for body symmetry with or without support as appropriate for age. Looking at bilateral passive range of motion into cervical rotation and lateral flexion, bilateral active range of motion into cervical rotation and lateral flexion, passive range of motion and active range of motion of the trunk, upper and lower extremities, including screening for possible hip dysplasia, pain or discomfort at rest and during passive and active movement, skin integrity, symmetry of neck and hip skin folds, presence and location of an SCM mass, and size, shape, and elasticity of the SCM muscle and secondary muscles. And then finally, craniofacial asymmetries and the shape of the head and skull. With the information that Sheila just outlined, we now have the information needed to classify the level of severity. Pay attention here, because this is definitely an area that is revised. Physical therapists should classify and document the level of CMT severity, choosing one of eight proposed grades based on the infant's age at examination, the presence of an SCM mass, and the difference in cervical rotation passive range of motion between the left and right sides. We're not going to read through all the grades here, but make sure you are referring to the most updated CPG when you are studying. There are eight grades to choose from. 
We added this to our study guides when we were kind of going through. I initially had this on my daily study guide that I would kind of just read through and look at every day just so I could make sure I memorized it. And that way, if I got a question on it, I would be able to accurately identify what level of severity the child was at. I feel like it's the middle ones that get a little hazy. The first three grades are pretty obvious. The last two are pretty obvious, but it's the ones in the middle that are kind of very specific. So it's definitely something that you're just going to have to know and memorize, especially if this is an area of practice that you don't see very often. After determining the grade, the therapist also needs to examine activity and developmental status. PT should examine and document the types and tolerance to position changes and motor development for movement symmetry and milestones using an age-appropriate, valid, and reliable standardized test. It is important to use an age-appropriate, reliable, and valid standardized test, such as the test of infant performance, so the TIMP, through age four months of corrected age, the AIMS from one to 18 months of corrected age or until they are walking, or the gross motor subtests of the Peabody Developmental Motor Scale Second Edition from one to 72 months of age during the initial evaluation and reassessments. Additionally, we need to observe and document asymmetries of age-appropriate developmental activity, movement, and upper and lower limb use throughout all examination positions. Quality is important, and asymmetry is common with diagnoses like torticollis. So looking at things like, are they able to roll to both sides? Are they doing a hitch crawl? Are they only transitioning over one side? Those are some of the things you might see in an older infant with torticollis. Another thing to consider is participation. Some important questions to address with family include asking about positioning when awake and asleep, infant time spent in the prone position, whether the parent is alternating sides when breast or bottle feeding the infant, infant time spent in equipment or positioning devices such as strollers, car seats, or swings. Another important action statement is determining prognosis. Prognosis for the extent of symptom resolution, the episode of care, and or the need to refer for more invasive interventions are related to the age of initiation of treatment, classification of severity, intensity of intervention, presence of comorbidities, rate of change, and adherence with home programming. A prognostic statement should include the expected outcome in objective measurable terms, the time frame for intervention to achieve the outcomes, and a description of potential courses of the condition if treated or not. Again, for CMT, the earlier and more intense the intervention, the shorter the episode of care and the more complete the resolution of symptoms. The episode of care has been associated with the severity of CMT with mildest forms requiring an average of two to three months of treatment and more severe forms requiring up to five to six months of treatment. Infants who receive surgical interventions may require an additional time. Seven factors have been associated with a longer episode of care, including older age at initiation of treatment, increased restriction of neck rotation passive range of motion, increased severity of head tilt, motor asymmetry, increased thickness or stiffness of the involved SCM or higher thickness ratio between the involved and uninvolved SCM, 
the presence of an SCM mass or lesion with delivery history, including infants with lower birth weight and breach compared with cephalic presentation. There is no consensus on the intensity, frequency, or delivery of intervention that is appropriate for all cases, except that the more frequent stretching and strengthening throughout the day are more effective than the less frequent ones. There is also some preliminary evidence of better outcomes when infants are treated by a PT versus parents, but the combination of physical therapy and home program is the more frequent intervention plan. There are five components recommended as the first choice intervention. Physical therapists should provide and document these five components as the first choice intervention for infants with CMT. Neck passive range of motion, neck and trunk active range of motion, development of symmetrical movement, environmental adaptations, and parent and caregiver education. Next, we would provide supplemental interventions after appraising appropriateness for the infant to augment the first choice interventions. Microcurrent is a low intensity single channel alternating current applied superficially at a level that is not perceived by the patient. Two studies demonstrate reduced treatment duration and improved range of motion with the addition of microcurrent to physical therapy intervention. Kinesio taping refers to the use of stretchable tape to support muscles and provide sensory feedback. In contrast to the previous CPG recommendation that kinesio tape could be a supplemental intervention, a 2016 level one study suggests that there's no added value to kinesio tape when provided for three weeks in conjunction with other conservative methods. Soft tissue mobilization is also discussed without much added benefit. If the infant is not progressing, then you must initiate consultation with the infant's physician and or specialists about other interventions when the infant is not progressing as anticipated. These conditions might include when asymmetries of the head, neck, and trunk are not starting to resolve after four to six weeks of comprehensive intervention or after six months of intervention with a plateau in resolution. Physical therapy can be discharged when these five criteria are met passive range of motion within five degrees of the non-affected side, symmetrical active movement patterns, age-appropriate motor development, no visible head tilt, and the parents and caregivers understand what to monitor as the child grows. It is important to reassess infants three to 12 months after discontinuation of direct services or when the child initiates walking and then discharge if appropriate. That was a lot of information, but you guys, this CPG is so comprehensive. It really is the go-to document for your congenital muscular torticollis preparation. It is detailed, comprehensive, and the most up-to-date document that you have access to. Reading and understanding this should help set you up for success on the PCS in terms of CMT. We are moving on to the next CPG for Developmental Coordination Disorder, or DCD. DCD is one of those diagnoses that can sometimes be missed. Children with DCD present as one of those kids deemed clumsy or uncoordinated. However, their limitations must affect their performance in their everyday life and in school in order to receive the diagnosis. As with the CMT-CPG, we're going to go through the action items with you. Action item number one refers to obtaining a complete medical history and systems review. A physical therapist should obtain and document a comprehensive history and systems review for a child at risk for DCD or diagnosed with DCD. They should document screenings of the neurological, 
musculoskeletal, integumentary, and cardiopulmonary systems to provide uniform data for more effective communication among clinicians and for entry in patient registries. Screening for DCD is most appropriate around age five using the DSM-5. Action statement number two refers to making appropriate referrals. Physical therapists should refer children to their pediatrician if there are red flags or concern for medical, developmental, or other exclusionary conditions, or when DCD is suspected, and no diagnosis has been previously assigned to contribute to evidence relevant to the DSM-5 criteria C. Red flags that require immediate referral include history of trauma, headaches or blurred vision, deterioration of motor skills, or significant hyper or hypotonia. Prompt referral supports and early identification can guide service delivery to meet the needs of children with DCD and their parents and caregivers. Action statement number three refers to completing participation outcome measures. Physical therapists should document child and parent or caregiver perceptions of the child's participation in environments that are meaningful to the child using one of the following participation or goal-related outcome measures, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, the Goal Attainment Scale, the Perceived Efficacy and Goal Setting Program, and the Children's Assessment of Participation and Enjoyment and Preferences for Activities of Children. Participation difficulties are often the reason that children with or suspected with DCD come to physical therapy, and participation changes are often the ultimate measure of success for the child and family. It is important to establish goals to address differences in the community and school settings, as children with DCD tend to participate in them less than typical children. Action statement number four is examining motor performance through movement analysis and observation. Physical therapists should complete observational movement analysis in a clinical or natural environment to identify movement quality characteristics that contribute to impaired coordination and the reason for referral. The observational movement analysis should lead to further tests and measures to examine children suspected with DCD. It includes core functional activities or activities in which the family is seeking physical therapy. Documentation should include movement quality characteristics. Some suggestions for movements that tend to be challenging for children with DCD include jumping jacks, skipping, jumping rope, and bouncing and catching a tennis ball. Action statement number five is to examine activity limitations using questionnaires. Physical therapists should document activity limitations that affect participation in the home, school, and or community using standardized questionnaires completed by the child, parent, or caregiver, or other significant adult as part of the initial examination of children with coordination difficulties at risk for or diagnosed with DCD. Physical therapists should choose from the following outcome measures assessing activity limitations, the Developmental Coordination Disorder Questionnaire 2007, Movement Assessment Battery for Children Second Edition Checklist, and Questionnaires or Interviews. Remember, according to the DSM-5 Criteria B, which includes participation and ADL deficits, 
A child's motor skill must significantly and persistently interfere with ADLs appropriate to chronological age. Action statement number six states to examine motor performance using standardized measures. Physical therapists should document difficulties in motor performance that are below what is expected based on age and experience for children with coordination difficulties at risk for or diagnosed with DCD as part of the initial examination to contribute evidence relevant to the DSM-5 criteria A, motor performance deficits. Two tests that should be used to document these motor difficulties include the Movement Assessment Battery for Children 2nd Edition and the BOT2. Delays that one may find may include clumsiness, slowness, and inaccuracy of fine and gross motor skills. The CPG suggests for those who cannot purchase standardized tests such as the BOT2 or the Movement Assessment Battery for Children, they can create a checklist for children five years and older that could include rhythmic galloping, standing on either foot for eight to 10 seconds, hopping eight to 10 times on one foot, skipping with alternating feet, standing on either foot for more than 10 seconds, and riding a bike without training wheels. Action statement number seven states to examine impairments of body functions and structures. Physical therapists should document impairments at the ICF level of body functions and structures for a child with coordination difficulties at risk for DCD or diagnosed with DCD as part of a comprehensive physical therapy examination. Some areas of body structure and function that could be measured include cardiorespiratory fitness, muscular endurance, muscle strength and endurance, muscle power, and balance. A few assessment tools that could be used include the six-minute walk test, the 20-meter shuttle run test, the pacer, the functional strength measure, handheld dynamometry, the sensory organization test, and the muscle power sprint test. The supplemental information of the CPG includes descriptions and other information on these tests as well. Action item number eight states that we should provide task-oriented interventions combined with related body functions and structure interventions as the first choice intervention. Physical therapists should provide and document a combination of task-oriented and body functions and structures interventions as the first choice intervention to improve motor performance for a child at risk for DCD or diagnosed with DCD. The CPG provides a list of these interventions. Task-oriented interventions include motor skill training, neuromotor task training, cognitive orientation to daily occupational performance, and motor imagery. These interventions are motor activities or programs to improve the acquisition and execution of specific functional motor tasks. The common principles of task-oriented training include part practice to whole practice, multiple repetitions, task-specific practice in variable environments, adapt training based on progress, increase environmental demand task, facilitate self-discovery using creative methods, and feedback provision. Body functions and structures interventions include core stability training, cardiorespiratory training, and functional movement power training programs. Action statement number nine states to use small group or individual sessions. Physical therapists should document and deliver interventions using individual or small group sessions for a child at risk for DCD or diagnosed with DCD. 
Research is still inconclusive whether or not an individual approach is superior for improving motor performance, components of physical fitness, or quality of life outcomes compared with a group-based approach. However, a combination of both small group and individual sessions could be used to encourage participation with peers, generalize skills within natural circumstances, as well as address individual goals. I've found that my kiddos who present similarly to DCD do well with one-on-one sessions where we can talk through the movements, use motor imagery, and correct the movements as necessary, and then I'll push into gym class or have another therapist bring another student for a two-on-two style session to encourage generalization of the skills and engaging with peers. Action statement number 10 recommends supplemental activities to augment the first choice interventions. After appraising the appropriateness for the child, physical therapists may recommend and document the supplemental activities of soccer training, taekwondo, and other physical activities as adjuncts to the first choice interventions for the child at risk for DCD or diagnosed with DCD. Suggestions include soccer training provided by a coach, taekwondo provided by a certified instructor, and other physical activities, including participation in sports. The supplemental activities in the guideline are activities that can occur in the home or community, activities that may support the goals of the child and parent or caregiver, and activities that are typically not included in ongoing physical therapy intervention. At this time, further research is required about a active video gaming for children with DCD. Action statement number 11 states that the physical therapist should provide education and home exercise programs to child, parents, or caregivers, or other significant adults about teaching methods or exercises to support physical therapy interventions. Examples of teaching strategies that the PT should encourage include breaking the task into smaller, simple components, beginning with decreased environmental and task demands, repetition of task components followed by whole task practice, gradually increasing the demands until the child can generalize skills to perform the task, and encourage self-discovery of problem areas and motor imagery if the child is able. Action statement number 12 states to provide appropriate intervention dosages to improve motor performance. The dosage for direct physical therapy intervention should be determined based on opportunities for practice in home and school environments with supplemental activity options in the community. A high-frequency practice schedule for two to five times per week should be distributed among physical therapy sessions and other practice opportunities until the goal-related task is achieved. This usually averages nine weeks, depending on goal complexity. There is no single definite prescribed dosage for intervention established at this time. However, the evidence supports frequent practice scheduled over several weeks or until the goal-related outcomes are achieved. The last action statement, number 13, states that physical therapists should provide collaborative communication about discharge recommendations for the episode of care. Physical therapists should initiate consultation with the child's primary physician, specialists, and parents slash caregivers about the child's progress during the episode of care and discharge plans and discuss ongoing activity recommendations with family and when to access future reevaluations. A child with DCD may require multiple episodes of care, periodic physical therapy reevaluations, and intervention over the child's lifespan. An annual physical therapy checkup, if available, would provide another opportunity to review goals and consider goal-oriented reinitiation of physical therapy. 
Most children with DCD do not outgrow their deficits when they reach adolescence and adulthood, so there still may be limitations and impairments seen in fitness, physical activity, and social participation. Proper referral is necessary. Ooh, that was a doozy of an episode. Make sure you read through both of the CPGs thoroughly as they contain really important information on both of these diagnoses. You can pretty much guarantee that questions on practice exams will pull from the CPGs as they are our gold standards of care. If they're not included in your study plan, this is your sign that they should be. We will talk to you next week. Happy studying. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.